You're listening to the CIT Podcast. If you'd like to know more about CIT or like to donate to this ministry, you can find us online at churchintoronto.com, Instagram, or Facebook. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we'd love to see you at church this Sunday. Good morning to everybody here and to all of you online. Last week, Najwa shared with us about who the real seed of Abraham was or is. And um, in the book of Galatians, Paul indicates first, his argument is that first the seed of Abraham is Christ, and secondly, it is all those who belong to Christ. This claim actually was quite a challenge to the Jewish believers because they felt that they were special. And the problem with feeling special is when you feel special, you end up feeling superior. And when there's feelings of superiority, there ends up being in the church, there ends up being problems, especially there's conflict, eventually even division. And Paul is addressing this uh, problem, this conflict in the church. This book of Galatians uh, addresses this conflict which is caused by the Jewish circumcision party coming in and uh, they're believers, but they are demanding that the non-Jews adopt all the uh, rules and laws of the Old Testament Torah in order to be fully acceptable to the Christian community. So we come today to the uh, end of chapter 3, where Paul addresses these various kinds of divisions. Our title for the message today is, All Are Sons of God Through Faith, with the emphasis being on the word all. All are sons of God through faith. So we're going to read the last part of chapter 3 this morning, Galatians 3, starting at verse 21. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise could be given because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. Thus the law had become our guardian until Christ, so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So, um, on first reading, you may say, well, yeah, I've read this before. Actually... There's a lot of radical thoughts in this section. 
So I hope by the end of this morning you realize there's some real radical things. Uh, so one thing that should stand out to us, first of all, is this Paul uses this expression, before faith came. So that must mean that if there's a before, then there's an after. So what's, the, what's uh, so striking about before and after? Well, that means that there's a pivotal point. There's a before that point, and there's after that point. And what is that point? That point is faith came. Faith came. So Paul uses this expression, before faith came. So what was before? What was before faith came? Paul says, what was before? You were kept in custody under the law. You were kept as prisoners. And the law was your guardian. I would say even worse than a chaperone. Something there controlling you, regulating you. Don't do that. Do that. Don't do that. Do that. Right? Kind of sometimes like a parent with a little kid, right? <laughs> okay. So that's the before. What is the after? What's the after? It says, now that faith, uh, sorry, where is it? Yeah, faith came. What is the after? Actually, what's interesting is when faith comes, there's this kind of con um, uh, comparison with Christ came, faith came. So it's almost like an equivalent. Christ came, faith has come. Or you could even say the seed of Abraham has come, as we saw from last week. This, the coming of faith event is closely tied and bound up with the coming of Christ. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Guardianship days are over because faith has come. John Barclay says this, What then is the centerpiece in God's ordering of the world? He's not just talking about Galatians. They have the whole world. What is the centerpiece? The centerpiece is everything is oriented to the arrival of Christ. Christ is the pivotal point of everything in the world. So, Paul says here that faith came. What does this faith, what does faith mean? Faith came. You say, well, wasn't, didn't Abraham faith? Wasn't faith there before? So, actually, what this really realizes is it also connected with Christ. When Christ came, faith came. Or we can also say, and we've mentioned this a few times in the last number of weeks, this word faith can also be translated faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ. So, in um, verse 23, it says, until the coming faith would be revealed. Faith is revealed. What is revealed? We say faith is revealed. And this is why it helps us to also consider this matter of faith as when the faithfulness of Christ came or when the faithfulness of Christ was revealed. The coming of Christ reveals the faithfulness of Christ in carrying out God's plan. 
So, the coming of faith, which is the coming of Christ, now Christ is universally available to both Jews and to Gentiles or non-Jews. When we say that Christ's faithfulness is revealed. Actually, what I have to realize is this. Christ's faithfulness is revealed, and that revelation or the revealing of faith should cause a response in us. Faith should rise up within us as a response to the faithfulness of Christ. When we see how Christ was faithful to the Father, that should cause us to have a response. This takes us back to chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says what? How do I live? I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's response to having the revelation of the faithfulness of the Son of God. Even Abraham, you think about, why did Abraham have faith? Because he heard the promises of God, he, heard the, he saw the faithfulness of God, and he had a response of faith. Same with us. So, all who have this response, regardless of whether you're Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, you become the seed or the descendants of Abraham. And together, we all become the one people of God. John Barclay said this, Since God's calling in grace did not take account of the standard classifications of ethnicity, status, or gender, which we'll come to in two verses, the communities it founded needed to demonstrate its presence what? The presence of what? God's grace in meals, in meetings, in patterns of mutual care that were not bound by conventional practice. What is he saying here? He's saying God's grace didn't take into account all the different classifications among people. And the communities of faith, which is the church, should demonstrate this, that mutual care among one another, regardless of all the different classifications, should be exhibited. And there should be able to be, what does he say, meals, meetings, mutual care. You know, typically, we find it easy to care for people like us. What about caring for people who are not like us? You know, I just mentioned this. Solomon mentioned in the intro, in the hosting, about community groups. You want to really know God and to be stretched a little bit? Have people different than you in your small group. That becomes a demonstration of God's grace to all people. I do appreciate here at CIT that we have so many different kinds of people. I really do. That's a real blessing, right? 
But, you know, um, so I was just going to mention something here. Uh, the elders, together with the Compassion Minister here at the church, have been considering how can we actually practice this. So we have decided to partner together with Jesus Network to enable and to help Afghan refugees who are coming to Canada. As many of you should know, the situation in Afghanistan is extremely unstable, and it is especially unstable and not safe for believers. So at present, many believers were able to get out of Afghanistan, but they are in temporary situations in other countries, in India, in Pakistan, and specifically. But Jesus Network is working together with a brother there who is from Afghanistan to get people relocated in Canada and get them settled here. So two things basically we have felt to do. One is to financially support Jesus Network and the reaching out to the Afghan uh, refugees, as well as using the basement of the house that I live in as a temporary um, housing for them until they get permanent housing. So we're working together with Jesus Network. What is this going to do? This is going to stretch us, especially me. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, as I was considering in December, I was hearing what was going on with the Afghan refugees, and some of you may have known that there's this family of six siblings who eventually got reunited here, and that was involved with Jesus Network, who got them here. And I just felt like, you know, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, my basement is free. Why couldn't I extend and open up that for people who are really in need? So we're going to be doing that. Okay, let's come back to chapter 3, verse 26. Actually, I'm going to read to you 26, 27, and 28 first, because this is where we're going to park ourselves for a little bit. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Notice in these three verses, three times Paul stresses this phrase, all, all of you, you all. Paul is trying to make a point here. And he begins with this word, you all are sons of God through faith. Now, why does Paul use the word sons of God? You know, if you notice, different translations translate this in a different way. Some translations use the word, you are all children of God through faith. Well, in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written, there's a different word for sons as there is for children, okay? And I believe here, especially in Galatians, Paul uses this word for a reason. First of all, let me say what he's not saying. He is not trying to use this word to refer to maleness or masculinity. It has nothing to do with this. Because, he says, you all are sons of God through faith. No caveats, no qualifications. That means 
Hazel, you are a son of God. Right? <laughs> so what is he saying here? Why does he even use this word? Well, sons implies something. Sons implies, I would say, mainly two things. First of all, and of course, sons and children is the same in this regard, is intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. In, chapter, in Romans chapter 15, he says, you ha, you, you've received the spirit of uh, son, adoption as sons by whom you cry, Abba, Father. There's a relationship between those who are sons of God and their father. We have the spirit of the adoption of sons. We cry, Abba, Father. So first is the matter of intimacy. The second thing, which I think is more striking, is this. Okay, when we read New Testament, especially read portions like Galatians, one of the first ways we need to begin to read is how do we understand the society at the time in which the writing took place? Now, I know for many of us that may be difficult to find out, so I'm going to help you a little bit this morning. The society in which Paul lived and from which he wrote was an extremely patriarchal society, which means it was ruled by men. Women had barely any rights at all. So it was a male-dominated society, number one. Number two, it was the sons who would inherit the father's possessions, not the daughters. The sons did. So what is Paul trying to get at here is this. As sons of God, whether you're male or female makes no difference. As sons of God, we get to inherit. Not only do we have a position of a son, not only do we have intimacy with the father, but we get to inherit everything that the father gives. So as Believers, those who are of faith, they are sons of God. They get to inherit everything. So inheritance is the thing. Now, I know you'll say to me, well, if you really know the Bible, you'll, you'll know that Romans 8 says that the Spirit testifies that we are children, and if we're children, then we're heirs. I know, that's Romans. We're in Galatians right now. <laughs> so I'm trying to... You follow me, right? You get my point. Paul is stressing the matter of inheritance, and he's using this by using the word sons. But all who are of faith, whether are male or female, are sons, and therefore we inherit the promises. And we inherit the promises, as we'll see, equally. What is a promise? Galatians 3.14, we already covered in the past. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles so that we could receive the promise of the Spirit by faith. What is the Spirit? What is our inheritance? Sorry, what is the promise? The promise is the Spirit. And we have received the Spirit, maybe not in full, but we have received the Spirit. And eventually we will receive the Spirit in full. Now we come to verse 27. And we should ask the question in this verse 27, why does Paul bring up baptism? Why does he bring up baptism? The verse says, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Why put baptism in here? Again, baptism 
the way Paul brings in baptism is actually rather maybe different or radical from what we think. So in this, he says, you're baptized into Christ, you put on Christ. Being baptized into Christ, putting on Christ, or we could say being joined together with Christ, this is what sonship is about. Now, most of us probably think of baptism as, yes, baptism is... Uh, terminating something and beginning something, the ending of something and the beginning of something, ending of the old life of sin and beginning a new life of living in Christ. But Paul implies something else here in this section by bringing in baptism. Baptism not only ended our life of sin, and the sinful life. Baptism also ended the life of division, of separation, of distinction of who we are. N.T. Wright says this. This may help us. They, the believers, have been crucified with him, with Christ, going down into the water of death, and escaping not only the old solidarity of sin, but, listen carefully, the old solidarity of human ethnic ties with all the separation from other humans that they entailed. Baptism is not just a matter of I am died with and died with Christ and buried with Christ and rise with Christ. It is also related to our relationships with one another. And that's why 1 Corinthians 12 says we're baptized into the body. We're not just baptized into Christ. We are. But we are also baptized into the body where there are no separations, no divisions. Most of us don't think of baptism that way, do we? We think of it more of an individual thing. But Paul puts baptism here in this whole section of you all, you all, all together. So in baptism, we put off all the things that separate us from others. The body of Christ cannot have these separations, these divisions. Okay, let's come to the radical verse, verse 28. This is a radical verse, okay? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This is a radical and revolutionary theological statement by Paul. Why is it so radical? Well, first of all, Paul is battling something here. Paul is battling the divisiveness of the Jewish law keepers. You know, as I was considering these verses again last night and pondering all this, I felt like, you know, um, this is kind of like uh, this th three verses are building up to this kind of crescendo. 
building, building, building. It's kind of like, you know, one of my favorite pieces of music is Handel's Messiah. And the very end of the Messiah is this, is this build up to the end, which begins with this uh, verse from Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And if you listen to it, it's not quiet. It's strong. It's bold. It's a crescendo at the end of how two hours of a piece of music. You finally get to the crescendo. This is the crescendo in this chapter. Right? This is the crescendo. There is neither Jew. There is neither Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. Boom. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's a big crescendo, right? Paul is, what, what is he doing here? He's emphasizing the inclusiveness and the equality of worth. Inclusiveness and equality of worth. And he's using three pairs. Three pairs. Let's look at each one of these pairs. The first one is, you might say, the, the cultural or the ethnic or the racial mandate, Jew or neither Jew nor Greek. Now, notice in this book, he's been talking about Gentiles a lot. All of a sudden, he comes to Greek because Greek is a specific nationality, race, ethnicity. Scott McKnight says this, cultural divisions are to have no part in the church of Jesus Christ. Let me apply this a little bit. I am seventh generation Canadian. Whoa, yeah, right? I'm special, right? The first ancestor came in 1800 to Canada. So I'm probably more Canadian than most in this room. Let me just ask you, how many of you here were born in Canada? Raise your hand. One, two, three. How many of you who have your hands raised, how many of your parents were born in Canada? I only see two hands up. Mine is one of them. Now, let's face it, don't I have a reason to feel a bit special? I'm special, don't you know? We taught kids to sing that song. <laughs> I don't know if that really is such a good song to sing anymore. <laughs> what does this do? This causes me to feel what? Superior? Privileged? But the fa yeah, different. But the fact is, eventually... We're all immigrants, either sooner or later. Okay, let me take it one step further, because I think this may touch a little chord with some of us. I have to admit, at least for me, I have, I have this problem. I'm Canadian. I am not 
American. Now, let's just address those of us who are on the north side of the border. Forget about those who are in the south. Maybe they got the same problem, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about us. Isn't that a sense of superiority? That statement is a statement of, I'm superior because of what I'm not. And what difference is that? Let me ask you, what difference is that to a Jew saying, I'm a Jew and not a Gentile? You know, by the way... Apparently, there was a rabbinical prayer that the rabbis prayed every day. And it was this. Thank God I'm a Jew and not a Gentile. It's not all. Thank God I'm free and not a slave. And guess what the third one was? Thank God I'm a male and not a female. Paul is... Boom! Hitting it right smack dab in the heart. So, where was I? No social, no ethnic, no racial, no national divisions. Culture has no part in the church of Jesus Christ. All humans should be treated in light of God's love in Christ, not in the light of our cultural past. Whatever our cultural past is, we have to keep telling ourselves, so what? I'm accepted by Christ, so is everyone else who is of faith, regardless of their background. The second thing was the social mandate, you might say. This is the slave, neither slave nor free. Now, notice here, as I mentioned, this is Paul's theological statement. He doesn't really develop anything here of these three things, but he does elsewhere. So, in the book of Philemon, the book of Philemon is a short book, just one chapter, but that book is addressing who? He's addressing a brother in the church who had a slave. And that slave became a runaway slave. And Paul met up with that runaway slave. That slave got saved, and Paul was sending him back. And he tells Philemon, he says, Receive Onesimus back as your brother. Whoa. That was against social norms of the day. Very much against social norms of the day. What is, what's Paul saying to Philemon? He's saying, you are accepted, you are a brother in Christ, you are part of the body of Christ, and your slave is also. Receive him as your brother. That was radical. So, both... All believers, regardless of their social status, are also equal members in the body of Christ. The third one is the sexual mandate, male and female, neither male nor female. Now, as I mentioned earlier, you have to understand when you read this, read first in the context of that society, women were considered inferior. 
What is Paul doing? Paul is challenging society's norm in the church. He's not telling the whole society to change. He's talking about the church. He's talking about believers. Among believers, women are not inferior. Just as there should be no prejudices among the racial, ethnic, national lines, nor the social status lines, neither should be there, neither should there be divisions along the lines of gender. Now, I never thought of this, but think about until I read it, but think of this. When the Jews were emphasizing circumcision, circumcision not only divided between Jews and Gentiles, Circumcision also divided between male and female. Why? It's the male who gets to bear the sign of the covenant. You women don't get to do that. Separation again. N.T. Wright says this, Male and female alike are baptized, die and rise with and in Christ. Male and female belong side by side as equal members of the single one family God promised to Abraham. All of these three classifications that Paul addresses is a radical thought, or at least was a radical thought in his day. I don't know how, if we consider it radical today or not. I'll let you figure that one out. Are there differences? Yes, there are differences. Okay? I'm a male. I will always be a male. I can't change that. My background, I can't change. But what should change? My thought, my feeling of worth should be no different than anybody else. Their worth should be the same as my worth. Why does he mention these three things? Because in each one of these three categories, one of them feels superior over the other. Another quote by John Barclay. The differences indicated by these categories are not erased. Paul was a Jew. He was born a Jew. He couldn't change that. What altered is the worth associated with these labels. What counts ultimately and fully is not one's ethnicity, gender, or legal status, but one's solidarity with Christ. That's what matters. There's diversity, and there should be diversity in the church. There should be diversity in the church. But no difference in value, no difference in worth. So, this does then beg the question, if you haven't had the question already, I'll bring it up. How should we understanding 
How should we understand the various passages in the Bible regarding women? Because it would seem at face value that there's contradictions in different parts of the Bible where women specifically are addressed. So I think it helps us to understand this from the perspective of do those verses address a principle or do those verses address a situation? Do they address a principle or do they address a specific situation? You realize here in Galatians, because it seems to come out of nowhere, this is a principle, this is not a situation that Paul is addressing. A lot of Paul's writings in the New Testament, he is actually addressing problems. As we've seen here earlier in this book, the whole Jewish thing, that's a problem. But a lot of other books, he's not dealing with, he's dealing with specific problems, not necessarily principles. This is a principle here, and the church should operate on this principle. Paul is actually overturning assumptions about gender. He also is opening up the possibility of women in leadership. So the last chapter of Romans, there are many men, many women that are mentioned there in specific ways. First of all, he, the first person he mentions is a sister, Phoebe, who seems to have a prominent role in the church in Sancria. Then he mentions Prisca. Then he mentions uh, Junia. Then he mentions other women as well. There's, I think, a Mary, and there's a Tryphena and a Tryphosa. Must have been twins. Anyway, he's mentioning women, which opens the door. And you think about it, in that day, that was not a small thing. So, the end of this verse 20 says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all part of the one family of God. This thought of oneness is actually a thread that goes through much of Paul's writings. In the book of Ephesians, it's strong. He says what? Christ on the cross broke down the middle wall of partition, the thing that separates people. There he's mainly referring to Jew and Gentile again. But he's talking about the oneness there. He's talking about, as I already mentioned in Philemon, concerning the slave. Onesimus, receive him as your brother. There should be a oneness in the church. In Romans, he says, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord of all is rich to all who call on him. Again, this thought of uh, um, all of the oneness. Then, lastly, I already mentioned this earlier in 1 Corinthians. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body where the Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all given to drink of one spirit. Again, the oneness is mentioned. So, now we get to the amen in this chapter. Uh, 3.29. All who belong to Christ, if and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The church. 
the one people of God, are the seed of Abraham. And not only are we the seed of Abraham, we are heirs as well. Peter N. says this. I like it. He says, in Galatians 3, the church is Abraham's seed. Paul is saying that the goal, the completion of Genesis 12, 17, that's the promise to Abraham, is realized in the church. It's not realized in Israel. It's realized in the church. The believers, we the believers, are in Christ Christ is the seed of Abraham, and because Christ is the seed of Abraham, and we're joined to him, we are also the seed of Abraham. And since we're the seed of Abraham, we are also heirs, inheriting the promise of the Spirit. Lastly, some people may say, well, okay, I understand we are all Everyone is accepted by Christ, by God, based on faith equally. No problem. But the point is Paul's making here in this chapter, it doesn't, it's, that's just the beginning part. What about as we continue on? We should live together practicing and having a visible expression, something visible for people to see. You really are all one in Christ. There is no separation based on culture, based on race, based on ethnicity, based on nationality. Neither is there based on social status, and neither is there based on gender. We don't just live to God. We also live with and to one another. It's not just me and God. It's me, God, you, we're all together. Kind of this triangular thing. Let's pray the Lord would deal and we would deal anything in our heart that has a sense of superiority or that we consider some having a higher value or worth than others. Paul's hitting this head on here and this is a principle even I would say it's a theological statement that needs to not just be in our mind, but also be in our heart. Let's pray. Lord, you died for all. And you have brought all believers, all those who are of faith, have been baptized into you and have been baptized into the one body of Christ. Not only have we put off our old life of sin in baptism, but we also have put off the life of separation, of superiority, even of inferiority. Lord, all of that has been washed away. We have all been put into the one body of Christ, and we are all drinking of the same one spirit. Lord, your desire is to see this one people of God, the church, in harmony, displaying you together. Lord, grant us grace. Lord, grant us mercy that we could have a full realization of what you have done and who we and all others are in Christ. We ask this 
in the loving and especially faithful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the CIT podcast. Our mission is to lead people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. If you want to connect with us, you can visit us online at churchintoronto.com. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services this weekend. Wherever you are, we want you to know that God loves you.